Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. Uh, We got a great one today, you know, for a change. My guest is Susan Neiman, author of Learning from the Germans, and it is a fascinating book because it looks at how the Germans processed the Third Reich, World War II, and, of course, the Holocaust, and then compares that to how the South, and to a great extent our entire nation, has dealt with slavery and the Civil War and Jim Crow and and lynching. In an Atlantic Monthly article recently, Dr. Neiman wrote, As an American Jew from the South who has lived in Berlin for decades, I've been asked whether Americans in contemplating a plantation home, Confederate statue, or some other monument to our nation's slave past should emulate the way Germans treat Nazi memorials, to which I respond, There aren't any. You know, at a time when the president of the United States is for some reason defending the Confederate flag and statues to the traitors who seceded from our union and went to war against the United States of America for one reason and one reason only, to protect slavery. I thought it'd be a great time to learn how we can learn from the Germans. Now we will pick up my conversation with Dr. Neiman, uh, talking about how the West Germans were a lot slower to accept that their country had committed perhaps the greatest crimes ever committed against humanity, a lot slower to process that than the East Germans. One thing I want to ask, because you don't talk a lot about Hitler in the book, and I, you know, I think that most people are just fascinated with the Nazis and fascinated with Hitler. For example, right after they lost the war, Germany's just devastated, right? They're living in rubble. Right. Uh, they're starving. I'm thinking they've been saying Heil Hitler since 1933. They, the Fuhrer is the Fuhrer. They greet each other with Heil Hitler. Right. Hitler. My and I just have always wondered this. The day of the, that they surrendered and why not even before this, because they had to know what was going on. Why weren't they going like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Just, why did we follow this guy? <laughs> what the hell was that? Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. I'm going to stop saying that. I mean, even a month before the surrender. I mean, didn't they just go like, how did we buy into this guy? How did we do that? 
as it became clearer and clearer that Germany was losing the war, of course, there were some people who fought to the bitter end. There were people who were shot as deserters till the bitter end. So it wasn't even always They enlisted children. They enlisted children to fight. Exactly. Exactly. But, um, you know, his support was waning, although it was quite dangerous to express that. What they mostly did was a monumental act of repression. What they did was to see themselves as the war's worst victims. We lost the war. Our men are in POW camps or wounded if they're not dead. Our children are hungry. Uh, We're freezing. Our cities are in ashes. And on top of that, the damn Yankees want to say we started the war. Now, where did you hear those tropes? This is one of the biggest epiphanies that I had while writing the book, is that post-war Germans sounded like defenders of the lost cause after the American Civil War. And that was repressing what had really happened. Absolutely. But it also led me to think the following, and, and this is perhaps the main thing that I think we can learn from the Germans, although there are others. It's completely normal for us to want to see our people as heroes. Of course we do. Uh, And see our nations as heroes. But if you can't see yourself as heroic, the next best thing is to see yourself as a victim of history. That's what I do. That's what I do. A lot of people have done that. What's not so normal, until the Germans did it, was to move from focusing on your own wounds to the wounds that you caused other people. And that's the turn that they made that I believe... Americans need to make as well, and indeed are beginning to make uh, in many places all over the country right now. Yes. So let's turn to the United States because we we just finally saw Mississippi say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have the (laughs) Confederate flag on our state flag. And the vote wasn't even close. You You know why? Because the NCAA said that if you keep the Confederate flag in your flag, we won't allow any postseason athletic tournaments in your state. And you know what? I don't even care what the reasons were. It's not the case that the Germans, when they finally came to see uh, that they had been a nation of perpetrators, it's not that they all suddenly felt like, you know, atonement was, you know, it's, uh, they did it partly. For self-interested reasons, I think every major change happens out of a lot of different motives, and that's okay. Um, You know, if Mississippi, you go to Mississippi and they tell you it's not even a joke. Our first religion is Christianity. Our second religion is football, which is true. Um, You know, if that's why they did it, okay. This is the thing. The reason I bring it up is we should use that more. I think James Carville said this. Why doesn't Coca-Cola say to the governor of Georgia, hey, buddy, make it so people can vote. And if you don't, we're going to give Coca-Cola money to Democrats and get your ass out of there. That's a great question because I was born in Atlanta and Coca-Cola actually played a progressive role in the civil rights movement when um, some people in the city wanted to honor Dr. King after he got the Nobel Prize by holding a city dinner for him. 
white people didn't want to go. <laughs> and it was Coca-Cola who said, you know what? <laughs> we could move. And in fact, at that point, uh, Atlanta was a one-company town. <laughs> and I don't know who's running Coca-Cola now, but it's a great question. What I would like to see is advertisers withdrawing their support from Fox News. Um, but I agree with you. Well, that, that's a whole other thing. I mean, obviously, that's a whole other big, big, big thing. But in terms of voting, let people vote. So, I mean, the, you, the corporate America can put pressure on these uh, secretaries of state and governors and legislatures and say, let people vote. Let people vote. And if you don't, either we're, you know, we're either leaving or we're going to give to your opponents. That's what we're going to do. We'll stay here, but we'll give to your opponents. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, well, that's why I brought up why Mississippi did this, because it wasn't because, and it does make a difference why they did it, I think, I think, I think. Okay, so you went to Mississippi for six months and kind of studied Mississippi, and again, you're right, it's kind of the, the heart of a lot of horror, uh, Medgar Evers, uh, Emmett Till, and on and on. You, you interviewed James Merritt. He integrated the University of Mississippi. And he, they, they made a statue to him, which he doesn't like. He, he hates it. But you, you talked to a lot of fascinating people. I, I, thought, I found this very intriguing. And the Emmett Till stuff was pretty amazing. And Thank you. A lot of people have liked that chapter especially. And I did really talk to everybody I could in this little tiny town in the Delta where the trial of Emmett Till's murder murderers was held, uh, you know, including the son of the lawyer who defended them. That was chilling. <laughs> it was. Okay, you see him in this restaurant. You don't know whether to go up to him or not. He comes up to you, right? Right. And then you go to his house, and it's weird, very weird. He has an entire arsenal there. Has an arsenal, including, like, huge weapons. So this guy, he spouts this bullshit about, you know, it wasn't about slavery. It was about uh, taxes. Right. <laughs> it was about just, it was not about slavery at all. About states' rights and taxes, right? Is that what he said? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and there are still people who will say that, and you ran into people who said that. And what's fascinating is just, just how much... Uh, so many people there have not confronted this. People have, but so many haven't. I look at Mississippi in particular as a magnifying glass. I think it contains the best and the worst of America. And of course, it's tremendously obsessed with its history, even if it very often gets its history wrong. A week after I handed in the final manuscript of the book, I was in the States. I was on the New Jersey Turnpike driving from one conference to another in the pouring rain. I was tired. I was afraid I was going to fall asleep at the wheel. And uh, so what did I do? What do most people do in those situations besides down a lot of coffee? Uh, I was singing along to the radio very loudly. And suddenly Joan Baez's cover of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down came. I don't mind, I'm chopping wood. And I don't care if the money's no good. Just take what you need. 
started to sing along and then I thought, um, it, let me, is there any ambiguousness in this or is it really an elegy for the lost cause? And it really is an elegy for the lost cause. The thing about Baez is her civil rights creds are as good as they get. She not only sang at the March on Washington, she sang in Selma after two white people had been killed there. So if even Baez didn't see a contradiction between singing an elegy for the old South and you know, supporting the rights of the people it enslaved, we have a cultural problem in America that is in no way confined to the South. It's all over the place. You ran into some uh, Civil War reenactors? <laughs> yes. We were also a little threatening, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And but I got to say, I also, I want to say I met some wonderful people, black and white, who are working terribly hard, and they're my heroes um, to overcome all this. Absolutely, absolutely. And God bless them. And there are people, uh, you talk to many black people in Mississippi, love Mississippi, love Mississippi. Exactly. James you, Meredith's wife, among others. Who comes from Chicago? Yeah, and and uh, Chicago is where Emmett Till came from. Uh, his family had moved there during the, the Great Migration, and he comes down. He's fourteen, and one one of the interesting things in this, of course, I think most of my listeners will know this story. He's fourteen. He goes back. His family had been from Mississippi. He goes back to visit family, and after picking cotton all day, uh, they go to town and. He goes into a store to buy some bubble gum. And it is said that when he left that he whistled and he had a stutter. So very often he could whistle to get control. And the wife of the owner of the store testified later that he whistled at her and made a pass at her, made a remark. And... Later, she recanted, but that's what led to his murder. So he goes back to his relative's house, and these two men later come by and take him, and they murder him in just a hideous way. His body is mutilated, and he goes back on a train, the same train he came down on. And his mother made this decision. She insisted on an open casket so that people could see. And that photograph, uh, her decision was an incredibly important one. The spark that lit the civil rights movement. Some people say that that and uh, Rosa Parks apparently said that when she decided uh, not to give up her seat on the bus, she thought of Emmett Till. And so these guys are tried in this town that is pretty much all white, all poor white, and they're acquitted. Well, the point is, is that uh, this was a, a, an enormous moment in 
the civil rights movement. But the difference is between Germany and the United States is so stark. And we're having this battle about statues. And we have a president who is a white nationalist, essentially. And we have a president who is neutral on the Confederate flag. That's what his press secretary said. And who wants our heroes, the statue of our heroes, to remain. Now, the purpose of the Confederacy, the whole reason behind the Confederacy, was not about taxes. <laughs> no. It was not about states' rights. Well, the question is, what right was the state, were the states defending? The right to enslave other human beings. It's written right. in every single uh, you know, document of secession. Well, if you read the Cornerstone speech by the vice president of the Confederacy, right. he just says, this is the cornerstone is slavery. Yep. This is why, this is where the first government First Constitution that's based on the inferiority of the Negro and that his right, rightful place is in slavery. That's what he says. I know. And, but, and so do a lot of other documents of secession that were written at the time. Yep. Yeah, I think Mississippi wrote the exact same totally. thing. Totally. Right? So in other words, when he says our heroes, he's talking about these traitors who led to 600,000 Americans being killed Yep, uh, on both sides. And the idea, it, it's the same as having a statue to Hitler or a statue to Adolf Eichmann. Of course it is. Or you point out, we don't even, they don't even have a statue of Rommel, who is the, kind of the most respectable <laughs> exactly. of the Nazi generals or the German generals. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. And the idea that we're even debating this, that we're debating having Confederate generals, statues of them, they belong in a museum. I agree with you entirely. And one of the things that annoys me about the debate, as it's usually held, is that people say, well, you're tearing up our history. And, you know... Your Aunt Mildred may have been a wonderful person, but unless she did something really important, you don't make a statue to Aunt Mildred. We don't memorialize every piece of our history. Statues are not just about history. They're about values. And we pick men and women who represent the values that we want our communities to share and our children to learn to honor. And Mayor Landro uh, of New Orleans made a beautiful speech, yes. which I quote part of when he oversaw the taking down of the major Confederate monuments in New Orleans. But one thing I, he said I, I think was um, problematic. He said he thought about the perspective of a 10-year-old black girl going by the monument to Lee, couldn't ever think that he was, he was there to inspire or encourage her. And that was a reason for taking them down. And I want to add, that's fine, but I don't want a little 10-year-old white boy going by that statue either and uh, picking up a model of masculine honor that should have been dishonored a long time ago. 
So these statues are not, you know, just history. They're about values. And, um, you know, the Confederate monuments need to be gone. And what I very much hope is that we can start a discussion about what values we now want honored in our communities and what should replace them. Brian Stevenson, who is really mm -hmm. the creator of the National uh, Lynching Memorial and the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson said something to me when I interviewed him. Um, he said, there are white people in the South who were opposed to lynching, and you don't know their names. And there were white people who opposed segregation. And the fact that you don't know their names is a problem. We need statues or monuments or memorials to those people. If you're doing heroes, those are the right people to be celebrating and not traitors and not racists who are doing everything they can to keep people in, in, enslaved. Yes, they were. But that then there's a long history after that. And we're talking about, you know, you have, have Reconstruction until 1877, then Jim Crow, the long history of Jim Crow, the long history of lynching. You know, those statues didn't go up until much later, till 50 years after the Civil War, right? And I did not find that out, I think like most Americans, until we really got a debate going in the country, which was, I think, in 2015 when President Obama gave the eulogy for the nine people who were massacred in Charleston. That is where I date a serious discussion of Confederate symbols from. But I didn't know that, and I grew up in the South. They went up in two waves. They went up 50 years after the war, just as Woodrow Wilson was kicking black people out of um, uh, jobs in the federal government, and the Klan was uh, having its uh, high moment. And then they went up again in the late 50s and the 60s as the civil rights movement was uh, you know, picking up steam. And they had very... Clear. I mean, it was a very clear point that people who built them were very clear about what they were trying to say. White supremacy forever. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what those statues are about. That's what they're about. And the idea that we just don't take them down, and again, they can go to some kind of exhibit somewhere. I mean, what, what the Germans do have are concentration camp museums. I mean, they, have, they use the concentration camps so that you can go there and see what they did. Yes. And they have memorials to the victims, and they have memorials to uh, the few people who were resistance heroes. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Susan Neiman and the Nazis. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Fuhrer bunker. 
It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer Bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, we're back with uh, Susan Neiman, author of Learning from the Germans. There's this term that you use, this word, uh, throughout the book. Uh, let's see if I can pronounce it correctly. Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. <laughs> you got it right. But we can just call it working off the past, too. Well, that's what it means, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in German, right? <laughs> Germans like long compound words. Yes, they do. Ich habe zwei Jahre Deutschen Hochschule. Ah, deshalb. That's why. Okay. Ja, natürlich. <laughs> ich kann sehr gut sprechen, aber nicht so gut verstehen. Oh, you can speak excellently. I'm impressed. That's right. You know where I learned my German? Do I know where I learned my who I learned my German from? Where? Uh, Sid Caesar. I don't know who that is or was. Do you remember your show of shows? He was a comedian, and he would do pigeon any language. He would do French, Italian, German, Japanese. It, it was a one of the uh, early great. It was a great, great variety show with unbelievable writing staff. It had Neil Simon, it had uh, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, it had, uh, it was this brilliant, brilliant show. Go on YouTube, and just for my listeners too, look up Sid Caesar, look up the German general. When I was senator, I'd go to the German embassy every once in a while, and I'd say, Guten Abend, and they'd say, God, you speak so well, you have no accent. You have no accent. <laughs> I'd go like, also oh, because I learned my German from Sid Caesar. And they didn't know who Sid Caesar was either. But I, just for my listeners, I don't want you to turn this off and go right to YouTube and listen to Sid Caesar. But my God, this guy is a friggin' genius. So I want you... I'm writing it down right Sid now. Sid Caesar. <laughs> Sid Caesar. Genius. 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 So, Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung... Perfect. ...is uh, the work of, of forgetting the past or dealing with the past. Is that what it is? 
working off the past okay, yeah. is how I translate it. Sometimes you could also say working through the past. I got it. And that's what they do. And it'd be nice if we did that, wouldn't it? Well, we're starting to do it. And I think one of the other things that uh, one can learn from the Germans is uh, working off the past, it's, it's not a vaccine. It's not a one-shot deal. Uh, it's something that has to take place on a number of levels. It has to take place in the courts. It has to take place uh, in the schools. But it also has to take place in popular culture, which is enormously important. And it can't be done in one generation, probably because every generation will have to retell its history and re-understand its history a little bit differently. But what the Germans have shown is that if you do that, that is, if you realize you will never be a really free or strong nation in the future if you bury all the shit of your past, what the Germans have found and I, I have been living here most of the time since 1982, and I have seen Germany become a happier, freer, more open, um, and stronger country for going through that process and coming out the other side. Of course. And it seems to me that America is doing this right now. I think you're right. I think that's such a good thing that's happening. So glad, yeah. I hope we continue to do it, but... I, this has been a breakthrough, and I think the George Floyd murder, murder was a moment because it was so hideous, so hideous. But it's on the heels of other murders. I tried to write this book with a note of hope because I think hope is a moral obligation. It's not just a feeling. There, I take my cues from Immanuel Kant, who said, "If we don't hope." that the human race can progress towards a better state, we will become despairing, resigned, cynical, and we will never do anything to make the human race progress towards a better state. And so we have, it's a moral obligation. But as I wrote, I wasn't exactly feeling it at the time. Um, and since George Floyd's death and everything that has happened since, I have been feeling an extraordinary explosion of hopefulness, particularly the way this has become an international movement where people in other countries are quite well informed about Black Lives Matter and racism in the United States and expressing their solidarity, but they are also saying for the first time, and we need to look at our own histories, and they're doing it. You're saying there are demonstrations all over the world. That includes Germany, right? Absolutely. And the Germans are actually learning something from the Americans. That is, we don't, of course, have the numbers of Afro-Germans or brown Germans who are mostly from the Middle East, but we have some, and they are becoming much more vocal uh, and saying, you know, it's not enough to... Um, hate the Nazis and be nice to the Jews to get rid of racism. There are some other things that need to be dealt with here. And Germany has begun to deal with its history of colonialism. It was, I, I was amazed. There's a popular magazine here weekly. I would say it's middlebrow. It's not really lowbrow, but it's sort of middlebrow. First of all, I'm very middlebrow. <laughs> so don't knock middlebrow. 
I'm not knocking. Um, okay. <laughs> there are, since you referred to me as a philosopher before, I have to say there are philosophers who consider me middle brow because I like to write things that ordinary, you know, people, <laughs> people are not. can understand. Exactly. The people who are not philosophers can enjoy. Um, yes. yes. So, so I'm all for middle brow. I'm just saying this has a wide reach. And the cover story was How Racist Am I? And it had a series of tests uh, that you could take. And a sample question was, um, did you ever have to teach your children how not to become a victim of police violence? So, you, you know, it's happening here, too. I have to say, of all of the things that's come out in the last five years, I certainly have a black friend who told me once about being stopped for driving while black and how scared he was and what routine he went through. We had kids the same age. We used to play on the same playground. What he didn't talk about was the talk. And as soon as African-Americans started talking about the ways they have to teach their children uh, not to be a victim of police violence, I was really, that is something that moved me more than anything else, because we all have fears for our children, you know? But one fear, it's scary to raise a child. Somebody said it makes you a hostage to fortune. But one fear that white people just don't have and didn't realize until black people started talking about it was that their kids, you know, could be shot by the police for nothing at all. And I think that's moved a lot of people. We had Donna Edwards, former representative from Maryland, who talked about that herself and that experience. We had also the mayor of St. Paul, uh, Melvin Carter, the first black mayor of, of St. Paul, and his dad was a cop. And so he said that growing up, he met all these cops, right? Because the cops were his, his dad's friends uh, when he was, you know, a kid. And then when he got was 16 and he, and he started driving, he met him again a lot. Because <laughs> uh-huh. they'd stop him. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, hi, Melvin. I'm sorry. Uh, you're black. I'm sorry. We just Is that the stop ed- you. <laughs> and it's not funny. But it, it was kind of. Melvin is a funny guy. So, But I think as painful as it is, it's terribly important that white people know these stories because we just don't get the depth of the systemic racism until we hear how it affects families. Because you mentioned popular culture. Uh, the miniseries Holocaust, mm-hmm. did that have an effect on the Germans? <laughs> Interesting, you should ask. It had a huge effect on the West Germans. And it had that effect because um, they hadn't seen anything remotely like it. The East Germans had been making films about the Holocaust for a long time, but the West Germans didn't have it. So it was this Hollywood movie that millions of people watched on television and suddenly realized it's you know, six million is not just a number. These were families like yours and mine. So it had, I don't, you know, it came out about the same time as Roots, but it had an even, I think, broader effect on West Germany, definitely. 
Well, what year was it? Like 1978 or nine? 79 or is at least when it yeah. came to Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for, for my listeners who don't, did not have not seen it, it was a miniseries, right? And it was right. a number so I think of. I just four. Yeah, something like that. And it focused on a, a Jewish family, and it was, it was very powerful. But it did surprise me at the time that what we heard was West Germans did not know the story in 1979 and were introduced to it. And I guess it took them until uh, 1995 to really digest it with, from the Wehrmacht exhibit. So I want to ask you about, uh, there was a tweet Frank Luntz, who's a Republican, uh, he, he created the term death tax for the estate tax. Oh, gosh, like, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, he's that guy. So he tweeted this thing where at, I think it's at Auschwitz, there is a quote there, which is those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Is, is that You know, I've actually never been to Auschwitz, but that is a famous quote by the philosopher George Santayana. And so he said that, for those who are talking about taking down our monuments, I'm showing you this picture from Auschwitz of this <laughs> quote, as if the statues of Confederate generals, etc., are somehow the same as the museum, well, that's what I call it, at Auschwitz. It's ridiculous. It is obscene. Yeah. It is absolutely obscene. I agree with you entirely. And I've been to Dachau. I've not been to... You've been to Dachau. You talk about... Yes, Dachau and Buchenwald, but not Auschwitz. Yeah. yeah. Boy, it's a powerful experience. It is. It's not a powerful experience to see a statue of Robert E. Lee. <laughs> yes. Unless revulsion is considered a powerful experience. No, I, I agree with you. That's an obscene comparison. It really is. I hadn't seen that tweet. Now, um, in Mississippi, Mike Espy is running. Yep. You know about that? Yep. And he's running against uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith. Now, she is uh, center there, and in the last special election, uh, she said at a public event about the supporter who uh, introduced her, she said, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be in the front row. I mean, he had a shot the last time, but he has a better shot now. The last time was a very, very quick special election, really. Right. And this time is a different, you know, it, it, I mean, obviously because of COVID, campaigning is different. I would suggest people give the Mike Espy. Mike Espy is the former... Um, Secretary of Agriculture, I think. He was also a congressman from Mississippi, and last time he came within like four points or something like that. It was very close. I don't remember exactly. Against her, but he has a shot there, and he would be, of course, the first black senator from Mississippi unless they had one during Reconstruction. Since Reconstruction, they did have one during Reconstruction. That one's a sleeper, but it's doable. And I've been encouraging uh, my folks to get rid of these enablers, uh, these Republican enablers in the Senate, and she certainly is one of them. And and so I would encourage my folks to do that. And there are a lot of just as you said, uh, the the uh, chapter about Mississippi. There's some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people there. Absolutely, some of the best people I ever met. Uh, we're going to take a little uh, break. We'll be back uh, with uh, Susan Neiman, author of Learning from the Germans. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Hi, we're back with Susan Neiman, and we've been talking about uh, how the Germans process the Holocaust and and the Third Reich, and comparing that with how the South has dealt with slavery and the Civil War and uh, Jim Crow and lynching. You know, I did an interview this morning with a, a German journalist who was asking, you know, sort of some tough questions. Well, why are you so hopeful about Black Lives Matter? And isn't it all just going to fade? And aren't the economic inequalities, you know, so great that it's not going to make a difference? And I gave her several reasons why I'm hopeful and why I feel this is different. One of them, I said, is that I get about 30 requests a day for money to support congressional candidates from states that I've never had anything to do with because Mm -hmm. people have realized, of course, how important not just the presidential election is, but uh, the congressional election. Yeah, I mean, you get into economics toward the end there about reparations. And of course, that reporter is right. You talk about redlining, for example. And I talked to Melvin Carter, the mayor of St. Paul, about this. There was redlining. The black soldiers who came back from World War II and had the GI Bill, except they could not buy houses in places where banks would give mortgages. The only places they could buy a house, banks wouldn't provide mortgages there. So, and, and that, of course, after World War II with the GI Bill and the ability to buy a house, that's your wealth. That's how you build wealth in America. Absolutely. Is the value of your house. And I was talking to Chris Rock, my friend Chris Rock, we were talking about this, and he said to me, the, the spotlight people, the folks at the Boston Globe who, who did the reporting behind that movie about the, the priests and uh, pedophilia, uh, they just did a uh, story on the net worth in the Boston area of whites and blacks, white families and black families, and how much, you know, do you think white families and the average black family are are worth and he told me white families $247,000 the average net worth for a black family this is in Boston $8 wow 
That's even worse than I thought the ratio was about 10 to 1, but that's worse than I. Well, that's Boston. That's Boston. You know, historically racist <laughs> town. I lived, lived there for eight years. <laughs> but I'm telling you, after COVID, it, it's going to be negative. That figure is going to be negative. So I'm you know glad that. you brought that up because, um, you know, so many people say about reparations, my family didn't own any slaves, so it's not my problem. Most white Americans came in one of the waves of immigration uh, after uh, the Civil War. So it's true of most white people that their families didn't own any slaves. But because we have this 90-year-old hole in our history between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, we don't know any of this. We don't know. I mean, I don't even like the expression of Jim Crow because I think it trivializes what uh, Brian Stevenson calls the age of racial terror. I think that would be a better expression. Uh, but we don't know about this. We don't know that when FDR got Social Security through Congress, the only way he could do it was by promising uh, Southern senators and Congress people that he would exclude domestic and agricultural laborers from Social Security. Well, 70% of African Americans were... Uh, domestic or agricultural laborers, and absolutely you're right that anybody whose parents got a, a home on the GI Bill, which allowed them to go into the middle class, basically, and that's an awful lot of us, anybody who had those benefits or whose parents or grandparents had Social Security, for that matter, benefited from structural racism that we often don't even know about. Yeah, the idea of, like, my family basically came in the 1890s, you know, from Russia and from Germany, two different sides. And we didn't, obviously, own slaves. But, yeah, uh, we benefited by being white. Yeah, <laughs> I benefited right. by being white. That's right. And... My family, same story of Russia and Poland. And they made it into the middle class. Because they were white, so we had a we had several legs up in a race that we didn't even realize. Yeah, you write about reparations in this, and you make a very good case for it in a way that I hadn't thought of. I think I have flippantly at times said, you know, well, we were in Russia and Germany then, but the the fact is is that uh, my family has benefited from our social structure that we see in this country that we're finally beginning to deal with, I think, I hope, I think. You know, I wasn't sure uh, what I thought about reparations initially. And I left that chapter for next to last because I knew I was going to have to write about it, but I really didn't know what I thought. And initially what I thought was very close to the position of Bernie Sanders and Cornel West and um, a number of other people, including a number of black scholars, who said, you know, what we really need is social democracy for everyone. Now, I live in a social democratic country. I have to explain to people that Bernie Sanders is actually to the right of Angela Merkel. 
because no member of her party would accept the small, I mean, they would consider the reforms that Sanders wanted to address to be way too small in terms of labor rights, in terms of, you know, parental leave and paid vacation. So anyway, those things are not considered sick leave, all that stuff. They're not considered benefits. They're considered rights in all of Europe, not just Scandinavia. So I, of course, am in favor of those things being considered rights for all Americans, too. But I, then I started thinking about, well, you know, what if a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust got, and there were some who stayed in Germany or came back, what if she got exactly the same package of social rights, as they're called here, as her Nazi neighbors? You know? that just somehow uh, we would think of that as unjust. And so I think even if we could bring America to the point where people thought of healthcare, education, decent labor practices as uh, rights and not benefits, I still think something would be owed to African Americans simply because uh, for all of the reasons that you just mentioned, they were behind in the race where we got a leg up. Yeah, and that's not even going to be a realistic part of a discussion in this country for quite a while. Wait, did you think it was going to be debated in Congress last spring? I mean, I was shocked. Or that five presidential candidates would discuss it even? I think we're moving on that. I, I mean, I agree with you. Other things are going to have to happen first. But the speed at which it went from Ta-Nehisi Coates and his friends <laughs> to ha- holding hearings in Congress was pretty, pretty fast. I thought. I agree. I agree. We'll we'll see. I, it would be interesting to have a real, real discussion about it. And you and you begin more than begin that discussion in in the chapter where you deal with that. And uh, it, it really made me think. And I thank you for that. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. So um, uh, let me ask you just one thing about Charlottesville. Sure. That was bad, right? (laughs) What surprised me about Charlottesville, uh, many things perhaps, but um, was the way the press was calling them neo-Nazis. Because I don't know what's neo about people who are carrying swastikas, wearing uh, T-shirts with Hitler quotes, you know, or blood and soil, which was a German Nazi slogan, or carrying these torches. The Nazis loved their torchlight parades. Jews will not replace us, weren't they chanting Thank that? you for reminding me of that one, too. Yes. Uh, so I didn't know we were going to replace them. I just, <laughs> I didn't know what that means. Don't worry. We're not going to become, <laughs> we're not going to become Nazis. We're not replacing you as Nazis. Right. but there are good people on both sides (laughs) maybe there was somebody on their side who was going like i'm gonna tag along to make sure dad doesn't get in trouble that that because his he's out of his mind and i'm just gonna calm down because this is ridiculous uh so i'm just gonna be there maybe that was 
what Trump was referring to. There are good people on both sides. <laughs> right. He's not even dog whistling. <laughs> Anybody can hear what he's saying. And not yeah. just in Charlottesville. And you know what is interesting? He's doubling down on this. Yep. That's what the Mount Rushmore speech was, the 4th of July speech. You know, I, I was thinking, you know what? I thought he had the racists. I thought he already had them. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what the strategy is here. Uh, and then I thought, well, maybe he's losing older racists because of COVID. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, you know, I you feel know. we've spent so much of our collective energy trying to understand the psyche of this very strange person in the White House. But that's as, that's as good an explanation as, as any I've heard. As to why he did this? Yes. <laughs> no, we, I, I, my understanding is that the book by his uh, niece is actually very good in terms of explaining his psyche, but not just that, about really taking the task, all the people who have enabled this guy throughout his entire life. I mean, I, I'm sure it is, and I will probably read it. It's just that, you know, I cannot think myself into someone who seems, I mean, to have none of the qualities, empathy, <laughs> decency, concern for other human beings, <laughs> intellectual curiosity, a sense of responsibility. I mean, any of the virtues that you can value in yourself or your friends or your family he seems not to have, and and all of the vices, and I just, I, I, I just, I mean, I get the idea that his father was horrible, but honestly, a lot of people had pretty bad fathers too. You know? We all go around saying this to ourselves all the time. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what we do. <laughs> we go like, I can't believe this. I mean, isn't it clear that this guy is a psychopath? You know. Yep. Anyway, so that's that. Um, listen, this has been fun. Uh, uh, Susan, thank you so much uh, for, for, for doing this, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Al. It's been a real pleasure. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. 
Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.